This podcast is brought to you by Go Kindly, making waves in betting and social impact. Hello, welcome to Taunt's podcast about feeling all of it. My name is Claire Twenty, and this week my guest is called Laura Conti. Our names rhyme, but we have very different stories. Laura grew up in a fundamentalist Christian community in New South Wales, which she left when she was 19. Now, the religious community is called The Truth. And I wanted to give you some more background on her upbringing before we start and you hear from Laura herself. I had never heard of the truth before I began researching for this episode, and that's not an accident. It's quite deliberate. The group, known by names including the truth, two by twos, workers and friends, Cooneyites, Christian Convention Church, the way, the no-name church, the friends and the fold, are said to have thousands of members across America, Britain, Europe, Canada, New Zealand, and Australia, and they're shrouded in secrecy. The Truth Church is believed to have originated in Ireland in the late 1800s when founder William Irvine, an evangelist with an interdenominational group called Faith Mission, began preaching independently on Mark 10 of the New Testament. Now, they're sometimes called the Cooneyites, and They made their way to Australia through the Protestant evangelist Edward Cooney, who moved to Mildura around 1884. Now, Laura says in this episode that her family's connection to the truth go back maybe four or five generations. They lived on a rural property outside of New South Wales. And I think it's worth noting that other former members, including Elizabeth Coleman, have said that they often hide in plain sight. She writes in her book, they meet in private homes on Sunday mornings and in rented halls, school communities during the week. They are almost impossible to recognise, even if you stumble across them, as individually they claim no name, denomination, affiliation or even organisation. In truth, Elizabeth writes, they are a highly organised worldwide ministry with an extensive following that carefully hides its origins even from its own members. They refer to each other as the friends and to their clergy as the workers. Members of the public will only come across them by responding to small advertisements in public newspapers. Now, I've never spoken to someone before who has grown up in what ostensibly is a religious sect or a cult and who has left it, which Laura did when she was 19. It's clear that Laura, from the very beginning, was highly intelligent and vivacious and adventurous and also fierce. And I think that in some ways, as she talks about today, that protected her from some of the darker things that were occurring in her community. Former members of the truth have confirmed that as well as holding fundamentalist Christian beliefs, where TV, movies, dancing, drinking, smoking, swearing and gambling were described as the devil's work, Women were also expected to dress really modestly and wear their long, uncut hair pinned in a bun. They were not allowed to follow current fashion trends or wear makeup or jewellery, and men must have their hair cut short. Beyond all of those things, though, children in the sect were told that if they strayed, bad things would happen to them. A lightning strike, for example, or being hit by a runaway bus or an illness, particularly if they left the church. Now, despite all of this, Laura is really a funny and warm person. In recent years, it's become really clear that there was a huge amount of emotional, sexual and violent abuse taking place within the community. And Laura escaped all of this when she was 19. 
I want to just warn you that there are some darker points in this conversation. So if you feel triggered by anything that we talk about today, including family violence, please reach out to Lifeline on 13 11 14 and I'll put some links to some other organizations that can help in the show notes below. All right, let's get started. Here she is, Laura Conti. Hello, Laura. Hello. Thank you so much for coming on Taunts and we finally got ourselves here. It's been a bit of argy-bargy, hasn't it, trying to find a time. Yeah, thank you for having me. The chaos of lockdowns and the emotional sort of roller coaster we're all on. Oh, I know. We were just discussing parenthood during this time. And so you've got a little boy who's three. Is that right? Mm, I do. Yeah. How have you found parenthood? Actually, it's been very rewarding. And for the most part, I have a very wonderful child in that he's very, he has very high, high emotional intelligence and he loves other kids and he loves being around us. And he's very cuddly and very sweet and very like generous kid. But the emotions that come with it, oh, my Lord, that's the hardest part for me is learning how to help them deal with their own little emotions. Oh, totally. And got any tips? No, absolutely not. (laughs) I just think, like, hats off to single parents. Like, you need someone else to bounce this stuff off. Mm. Like, you need to be able to say, I'm out. Someone else needs to go and negotiate with this because I'm out. Totally. Oh, exactly. And I think, I I don't know about you, but I'm parenting very differently to how I was raised. And so that's the whole thing, not having a blueprint for how to cope with all this stuff and wanting to raise as someone who's in touch with their emotions, but also not breaking things. (laughs) Correct. Especially with little boys, right? I'm so, I've always been so sure that socialization was a big part of it. And you know, and I'm a very kind of strong feminist woman. Like, how do you raise a strong feminist boy who's not an absolute shit? And like, you, you just get so many like smacks in the face about oh. <laughs> testosterone. Like, wow, testosterone, eh? <laughs> yeah, it's a real thing, isn't it? I know. Yeah. I know but there's a great comedian that I love called Jessica Foster Hugh, and she has this whole bit about how she, before she had a son, she was like, "I'm going to raise a kind boy and a strong girl." And then her son was born, and he's just like this tornado. And she's like, "Oh wow, there's things we have to put in here for this kid because they yes. come into the world they way, the way they come in, don't they?" I know. And yeah. You just, yeah. I mean, my son. It's, I've just so many confronting little moments, but he loves babies, loves baby dolls, loves things like that. But he's only interested in them if they move. So I remember giving him a baby doll when he first started walking and he just used to chuck it down the stairs and watch it roll down the stairs. And I was like, oh, my God, this is so bad. <laughs> I was like, what kind of child doesn't nurture a little baby and love a little baby? All he wanted was for it to move, you know. Yeah. And then I was like, I've just got to learn to accept that, yeah, there's, you just don't make it toxic, you know. You don't make a big thing of it. You, like, learn how to work with masculinity and work with with um, testosterone and not get too sort of (laughs) panicked about it I know about them throwing the baby down the stairs and look I've got a five-year-old and I have to say there were moments where I was very worried about him too (laughs) just because he was really obsessed with the wildebeests in the Lion King for example because they trampled like Mufasa and it was awful and I remember at the time thinking oh my god who is this kid and what's happening and actually he's this lovely kid now and I think they I think it just Three is just that time where all the emotions coming and they're learning their boundaries and exploring all of that masculinity. And like he's really into war games and, you know, playing weapons and fighting. And we never did any of that. What he never watched anything like that. Yes. But it's just the way that it is, I think, as they They've just got little brains with neurons that just fire just at strange times over strange things. And do you know what? I always think I was obsessed with guns when I was a kid. And so I think 
you know what? I came out of that all right. Like I'm not a serial killer. So I try not to get um, too hung up on that when they get obsessed with little things like that. But it is very confronting to like, I just thought, you know, it was all about the way we socialized them and it was all about the things we spoke to them about. And no, their little brains actually are wired a little bit differently and we have to work out the best way to get yeah. something Good exactly. masculinity out of this instead of this crazy kind of frenetic energy. Yes. yes. Yeah. And I think you're absolutely right. I think they come into the world the way they come in and we can shape around the edges, but they mm-hmm. are who they are straight mm-hmm. up. I wanted to ask you who you were when you were a kid. Well, bizarrely, I think the person I am now as a 40 something year old, I don't even know how old I am now, 41, 40, who knows? I mean, how many years have we been in lockdown? <laughs> I could be 80 by now. Anyway, I feel like. I went in. To lockdown at around 40, I'm somewhere around there now. And honestly, I am I was until I was about eight years old, the person I am now. Like very quirky, very funny, very yeah, very I had a lot of energy as well. I was very amazing imagination, very curious, very I, I was a lot like I was a lot like my boy cousins. I kept up with the boys and I loved playing the boys' games. I was quite rough. I was quite I wasn't I liked, you know, I liked dresses and I liked bows and things, but they weren't ever going to hold me back, you know. Like I was one of those kids that ran and jumped and swam and went as fast as I could at everything and thought I could do everything and lots of ways exactly like my three-year-old. <laughs> now that I say all those things, I'm like, yeah, okay, we know where that comes from. <laughs> um, uh, yeah, I, I have always been a bit of a leader of things. Like, you know, I was always the kid that, like rounded everybody up and decided what I wanted done and how I wanted it done and <laughs> yeah and then you know sort of 18 to teenagehood was very difficult for me but um yeah I was a I was really who I am now at the end of the day mm. a little bit quirky very funny a little bit unusual <laughs> that sounds familiar actually <laughs> I found I found a lot of me when I was a kid for sure now I wanted to ask you I know you've been talking a lot about your story and that must be really exhausting and take a lot it's so exhausting yeah, it must be exhausting. But I, I, are you comfortable talking about the context that you grew up in? Is that this yeah, kind of like sure. quirky, you know, energetic? Yes. Kid? Yeah, for sure. No, and, you know, I, I very deliberately talk about my background because I think it's really important in a broader context in these unusual times that we're in. Um, yeah, I feel that there's space for people to hear things from different perspectives for the first time in, in ever, really, um, and it's very important to me. Look, it is exhausting and I do, it does especially with lockdown on top of it and a toddler on top of that does really kind of like emotionally exhaust me. But um, I'm never, I never, I never regret that I've done it. And it's really important to me that I do it. Mm, Absolutely. So how did you grow up? So do you want to describe the home that you grew up in as this sort of kid, adventurous, energetic girl? Yeah, I grew up a multi-generational fundamentalist Christian. So I grew up in a very conservative, very, a lot of a lot of black and white thinking, a lot of rules, a lot of regulations, a lot of this is just the way it's done, don't question things, a lack of curiosity. And, you know, I grew up in a very loving home, but it was it was very loving within boundaries and um, everything was driven through the lens of our religion and through the lens of our community. I grew up in a rural, very rural community, um, which is unusual even for my community, but my own family is very rural. We come from far western New South Wales and from northern northwest Victoria so I grew up for a fair chunk of my life out near Burke, Brewarrina, Ningen, um, out past Dubbo, long way out past Dubbo, surrounded by a very loving, very big family, very multi-generational farms, uh, very strict gender roles for men and for women but you know very loving as well that I, I think 
I can't emphasize that enough is that, you know, I was a very loved child and there's a lot of privilege of coming from a background where you are always fed and always clothed and, and, and know that you're loved and you've got a safe place to sleep at night. But it was also a very abusive religious community. There was a lot of sexual abuse, a lot of emotional, financial abuse. And I, I think sort of touching earlier, going back to sort of being eight and, and struggling from then on, you know, that's the age at which I realised exactly what was happening in our community. And I was no longer a child from that point on really because I realised just how unusual the community was I lived in, how some of the behaviours inside my family and community were not very godly, Christian or um and, and what roles were expected of me as a girl. So it was a very tumultuous time from then on, but um, I did nonetheless have a lot of good times and I had a wonderful rural childhood full of running and dirt and <laughs> never-ending sunsets and, you know, rural kids grow up with a sense of independence, I think, because there's never enough people for the work that needs to be done and you're expected just to dig in and work from the pretty much from the moment you can walk, wow. which is maybe what I'm doing wrong with my son. <laughs> um <laughs> You know, there's, I mean, I, my husband always says to me, gosh, I can't believe you were driving so young and I can't believe the responsibilities you had so young. But, you know, there was never enough adults for the work that needed to be done. There was always a car that had to go somewhere and a, not enough adults to, you know, to get it to where it needed to go. And so you were just taught to stand on the seat and to get into first gear and to steer. And there's a sense of, like, just learning how to be a responsible person and how to get stuff done that comes from being, coming from a rural background. And, um, yeah, I mean, there were always other kids that needed to be cared for and, more kids and they were adults so you know there's just this sort of you just naturally this work to be done and you're just expected to do it and certainly in a fundamentals community you know the idea that you would have extracurricular activities the idea that you you know we didn't have tv or radio or music or any of those things I mean work was our life which probably didn't help the situation either but yeah we have a strong work ethic yeah, I take that away from my community mm. as well. What What was the setup like in terms of the buildings and the way your families kind of lived together? Did you have separate houses? Were you on one big farm? No, our communities all live in their own homes and 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 have for all kind of intensive purposes their own homes and their own lives and their own families and their own um, yeah their own work. But um, the nature of the community is that we're very close in terms of praying together and coming together to worship and so there are several times a week meetings they're called but you know other people would call them church services so yeah we tend to congregate in areas where we live in similar areas so farms are not too far from each other houses not too far from each other and um and then of course layer on top of that the multi-generational nature of our our businesses we tend to work in businesses that are you know owned by a grandparent or an uncle or an aunt and so many people work in the same business so they spend all day together at work and then all day together again mm. um, on the weekends at services and then in the evenings you know caring for el- caring for the elderly and they in you know in and out of each other's homes and things and so yeah we lived on our own farm but you know nearby other family members farms and I guess similar to a lot of other faith groups we share things like machinery and labor and, and you know that's not uncommon in farming communities for everyone mm. to to share each other's things so yeah we grew up in each other's pocket even though we had our own space we really were in our space alone yeah wow and what was the belief system like are there things that you've taken from it that you practice now in your own life or have you removed yourself completely from the struck like the belief systems existing within it I never um bizarrely I never believed in our belief system <laughs> I know that sounds really bizarre I mean I'm, I'm kind of I forget how many generations four five three four five three on one one strand, four and another, five and another, I think. 
so it's it's ingrained into my blood. I mean, everything about my existence came from this belief system, but I don't think I ever believed it. For me, I, it never made sense to me. I wasn't the right personality for it to make sense to me. I now realise in hindsight. I wasn't the sort of person who was sort of compliant enough, I think, or that needed meaning and purpose enough. I think the people in my family and community for whom it, it matters are people who need it in order to feel at home in the world and to feel comfortable in the world and to feel that there are reasons. And, you know, as a personality type, I think that I just don't fit into easily. So I think I asked too many questions from the moment I could <laughs> I could articulate them. And so I never felt that, that that religious context made sense to me, that I needed it in order to make decisions. I loved my community and I loved my family and I think that comes from being a sort of a social personality type. I loved the social side of it, but I never needed I never needed it. So um, I'd say I'm sort of an atheist. I don't know. I, I, I come and go from whether or not I believe in a bigger power. I believe in a, in a higher power, but I don't know if I think that it's God necessarily. Mm. Um, or male. So, yeah. <laughs> but, yeah, or definitely male. Um, I just doesn't, yeah. I don't need it. So, and I don't think I ever have. <laughs> yeah. So is that the belief system was that if you left the community, your life would end? Is that is that a way of saying it? Well, uh, it's. Sort of, it's basically the, uh, the belief system is a very literal interpretation of the Bible and a very black and white um, interpretation of, of Christian beliefs. And so, what is written in the Bible they believe to be true, like just black and white true. And they, you know, they but they do pick and choose the things that they put attention to. Um, and so, you know, the things about women, women's clothing, women's appearance, women's roles are just sort of taken as literal. That's the way it is. And if you don't follow, then you've got the devil in you. And Basically, there's sort of a very much an us and them interpretation of the world. So there's us in terms of our interpretation and the way we live and then there's everybody else. And the only way you can get into heaven is through our interpretation. Everything else is a false god. Mm-hmm. And they're not alone in that. I mean, there are Mormons believe a very similar thing, Seventh-day Adventists. Scientology actually is similar as well, although their interpretation, they don't have Bible per se, they have a different text. But, yeah, it's very much an us and them mentality. And so while I don't actually say to you you'll die, everything in the belief system is set up to be about, well, you believe the way we do or bad things happen basically and those bad things are amplified. So people who left, we heard a lot about when they died. Um, people who left and bad things happened to them, we heard a lot about that. We didn't hear anything about those people who left who went on to have good lives and went on to live functional lives. They just disappeared from us, you know. And that's very deliberate because if there's no reason for you to stay, you know, if you're not scared of something, then why would you? Mm. Why would you stay? So, yeah, I, I think it's about um, the roadblocks are put there in your way to scare you a little, especially as a child. You know, that's how I came to believe. I think that if you left, you died, is because you know I did know some people who left who did die, but of course I didn't realize that actually that wasn't everybody. That was you know somebody died in an accident, someone else was murdered. You know, it wasn't. They didn't die because they left. They died because of other tragic things that happened in their lives. But that's unfortunately not the story that we were told. Mm, wow. Is there a moment you remember, like a particular moment when you were eight, like a something you saw that made you really think, well, this is not the way that I want to live or I don't believe in this structure or is it a gradual process, do you think? It was very gradual but it was it was really as an eight-year-old I, I had older cousins, I had older female cousins and um, I, I mean I've spoken a lot to various psychiatrists and psychologists over the years about what happens to you at eight and, and why it was that eight is such a big turning point in the way I felt about my home and the way I felt about our community. 
you know, you, do, you reach a level of emotional maturity where you're more aware of the things around you. And so, you know, eight is a kind of an emotional maturity, but it, it was also at eight I had older cousins and I, I suddenly noticed what was happening to them and what was expected of them and I felt very, very uncomfortable with it. You know, I inherited all my, my cousins' hand-me-down clothes and I saw their clothes change. I saw what was expected of them. You know, no longer were we just carefree kids for whom it didn't matter what length our dress was. All of a sudden it mattered what length the sleeves were and what length they came down to below our knee. You know, and I inherited all their shoes and, I, you know, all of a sudden they were no fun shoes anymore. They were all the closed toe kind of suitable shoes. And so, you know, there's a very marked shift that happened around eight about the things I inherited from them in terms of clothes. And then um, it also became very obvious that I was expected to participate in this religion. So at eight, you know, there's sort of not formally, but informally, I guess you become mature enough to suddenly read the Bible and to be expected to participate in prayers and to be expected to what they call make your choice, which is your choice to stay in the religion forever and to dedicate your life to it. And the responsibility that comes with that is that you are expected to speak in the meetings. And I, I, I just, as an eight-year-old, I was very developed in my reading ability. I loved reading. I could read everything. And um, I understood the things I read. You know, I read Edith Blyton when I could get my house to read. You know, at school I was sent to the to the year six kids to read with them when I was in when I was in kindergarten because I could read so well. And I just, as an eight year old, realizing that I was meant to read the Bible and I was meant to understand it, I, I I probably had what I would think of as a panic attack. I was just like, I don't understand the Bible. I've read all these other Edith Blyton books and I've read all these other things and I understand them and I don't understand this Bible. And so there's this change in me that happened where all of a sudden I realized the level of responsibility that was required of me as a girl and as a woman inside this group Mm. and how does that change as as you got older are there more responsibilities well you know as the years went by then my cousins got married and married young and I didn't feel comfortable with that my cousins left school and I didn't feel comfortable with that yeah I guess more and more of those instances came along that made me think no this is not working for me um and then, you know, I saw my male cousins get given leadership kind of roles and given responsibilities inside our religion and I was even more angry and more upset because I thought I'm actually more clever than them. Like it's a very kind of stuck-up kind of childish thing to think, but I was like I'm cleverer than them. I can do this. You know, they're a bit useless and I'm not. Like <laughs> why are there no jobs like that for me? Um, and then, you know, probably from around 10, 11 onwards, the abuse just became more and more evident to me that what comes through those power structures of very traditional male and female roles is a whole lot of abuse behind closed doors that as I did start to understand a bit more about the Bible, I could not, I just couldn't get that to line up with my, you know, my interpretation of the Bible just couldn't line up with the amount of abuse I could see about happening behind closed doors. And so none of it ever made any sense to me. It just didn't stack up. Mm, I'm so sorry. I just think I can't even comprehend what that would do to your sense of self as, as a child at that age, trying to navigate those really adult kind of concepts and themes, I guess. In terms of the abuse, and I don't want to stay very long there, do you mean it was was it like physical or sexual abuse and or I mean- no? You know, we I never experienced well, not never. I rarely experienced any kind of overt physical abuse. Everything is so so emotional. You know, this idea that if you don't do what you're told, you're going to hell. This idea that you're damned. You know, for not listening to your elders, for not responding to your elders on something that is very clearly abusive. Um, sexual abuse was rife in my family you know I I got out pretty lucky all things considered 
Um, in fact, I consider myself to be one of the luckiest people because I was such a tough kid, you know, that I was put in situations where other kids had been abused and I just, I, I honestly, I just love this kid. I love this kid that she was. I was just like, don't you touch me. You get away from me. And, I, you know, I would walk out of the room and I would stomp off and, I, you know, and I caused whole issues and whole problems in my family because I was so defiant and so angry and so mean. Um, but, of course, that's how I got out, right? Mm-hmm. I got out of, of situations where other kids got sexually abused because I was defiant and I was mean and I was tough as nails, you know, and I love that kid. Mm-hmm. But she should never have had to do that, obviously, but... um. Yeah, it's it's not. It, it was just endemic in everything, you know. The the emotional abuse, the spiritual abuse, the financial abuse. I mean, you've got multi generational businesses, um, you know, money being donated to organisations that don't exist as organisations. The expectation that you will donate, even when you don't have enough for your own family. It's um, it's it was everywhere. You know, it was every day there was abuses of some kind. Mm. At the heart of that, someone's benefiting, right? Who was benefiting from all of that? It's just, it's the senior men in the organisation, right? So we have what are called workers who organisations would call priests or would call clergy. They don't have a formal job and they they move from house to house and town to town supported by our, by our community um, and we are expected to donate to them. We're expected to have them in our homes. We are expected to revere them. Um, they're not there's no formal policies in place in terms of their employment in terms of who they work for it's all very casual and yeah the, I mean that's how they are sustained that's how they afford cars that's how they afford clothes that's how they, how they afford to run our, our large conventions every year is on the donations of other people mm. does that make you angry still do you have a lot of rage or have you kind of <laughs> moved forward I did it makes me angry I'm really angry (laughs) (laughs) no I did I did I was a very very angry you know teenager I was I was angry sort of from teens all the way through teens in my 20s I mellowed in my 30s and onwards um and that came as as a result of hearing more other people's stories and realizing that there's so much you know so much worse out there than what I experienced and I also mellowed by being able to talk about it, by being able to articulate it has somehow made me feel more at peace with it, that it's no longer hidden and there's no power in that hiddenness anymore. I, yeah, there's something about being able to talk about it and also being able to hear other people's stories that has taken it out of the shadows, has taken away a lot of the rage. But, yeah, God, I used to be so angry. You know, my, my response to people who used to try and talk to me about getting out was just get out, just get out and run and then sue them and then this and then that. And then over the years, you know, I realised actually that's not, that's actually not the best way to get revenge. That's not the way to get out. It's, you know, there's other ways we can do this. Mm. And taking it out of the shadows and taking it out of, get, taking the secrecy out of it mm. has really changed this. Mm, the truth sets you free, right? There's something yeah, really it does. in that, I think. Yeah, it yeah. can't hurt you anymore once it's mm. out. You're shining a light in all of those dark spaces and then suddenly there's no, more, there's no dark in there anymore, I guess, in a simplistic no. way. How did you get out? Because you were 19, right, when you finally left? Uh, yeah. I, and then, you know, I, I didn't ever just leave. I, I didn't ever get out. I didn't, it wasn't really like that. It was, you know, these series of things that happened to me from eight onwards just gradually built up and built up. And I made a series of choices at every junction along the way. And um, 
those those series of decisions led me to a point where I was no longer wanted really is what is what happened mm. I mean if you've got a kid that that just keeps making decisions like that she's not gonna she's not gonna get married she's gonna have to stay at school and then when she finishes school she's gonna want to go to university and then when she gets to university she's gonna want have a job and you know there's a series of decisions all those decisions added up to me just one day standing at a tram stop and realizing I didn't fit in and that I wasn't wanted and yeah, and I sort of made this snap decision and went, no, I'm not doing this anymore because I don't feel like I'm wanted. And these people are not, don't feel like they're good people. And and then it unraveled from there, really, that I just said, I'm not doing this anymore and was very quickly mm. found myself on the outer. And then from there, found myself very alone and without any support structure. Oh my God. Were you told not to go to university or was there pressure on you to get married? Or was it just that you quite strong in who you were and just kept making those decisions so no one stepped in? Well, I think um, there's a lot of subtle pressure. There's a lot of um, when everyone else around you is doing those things, it takes a lot of courage and a lot of strength to say, yeah, I'm not doing that. And, you know, I did have a reputation for being a pretty strong kid and a pretty kind of rebellious kid and a pretty determined kid. And I think they just sort of watched me and thought, oh, she'll fall over eventually, oh, she'll fall over eventually. You know, and gradually and gradually took support away from me. Um, thinking that she's not going to do this, she hasn't got any money, how's she going to go to university? Mm-hmm. How's she going to do any of this stuff she thinks she's going to do, you know? And once you have taken away financial support from a child, I mean, well, how are they going to do it? And I was just like, well, no, this is what I'm doing. This, I'm going. This is what I'm doing. Yeah, to the, yeah, to the point where they then withdrew all kind of contact with me and really didn't speak to me. Um, and so, yeah, I mean, that's, that's their way of solving things too inside my family and community is if we don't like what you do, we'll just shut you off and we'll just not talk to you until you come around and realise can't do it without us, which just made me more and more defiant. Good on you. Good on you. I know you said you like that kid. I like that kid too. Oh, my God. What, is, what a lesson. Can you imagine parenting that kid though? <laughs> which is what you're doing now. Life comes full circle. <laughs> it's interesting, isn't it? So how did you do that? If they were with your financial support, how did you, how did you go about supporting yourself? I just worked. Honestly, Claire, I look back now and just think, God, it's lucky I was young and I had energy. But, you know, I just worked. I worked and worked and worked and I lived on nothing. And, I I mean, that's a lot of the motivation behind why I run the business I do too is that, you know, I survived on food banks. I mean, I never spent money on food. Every cent I had I put in to pay the rent. I lived in houses with nothing in them. Like I had a mattress from hard rubbish and, you know, a, a little table to work on. And I'd go to the university library every night and never bought a book. I'd get them out of the library and the, they had the day the day things where you could only, you know, a textbook would only be available for the day. You couldn't take it out for a week or a month or anything. I'd go in the evenings after work and do my readings and go home and sleep on my mattress. And, you know, I never I never spent money on food. I went to food banks every week and I had a roof over my head and I had this just ridiculous idea that if I finished university I could get a career and if I had a career I was free. You know, I had money and I could help my sisters and I could buy a house and I could have some kind of life and as naive and as simple as that sounds it's just what I did wow how did you get a job where did you work when I was at university I worked as a swimming teacher and um at fast food outlets and um and then I got a job at a consulting firm after I finished university right and you did accounting I did do accounting and finance (laughs) bloody awful (laughs) let me tell you it was bloody awful (laughs) why did you choose accounting why because they had jobs like I literally was like, I, I remember going into the career person's office and going like, how do I get a job? Like I just need to get a job. And 
where do I get a job? And they were like, well, here's where's hiring. And I was like, great, what do I need to do to get that job? I didn't know what it was. I didn't even know who these firms were. I just wanted a job. <laughs> and I guess it's also money. It's money, right? It's like learning about money and then getting a job to do that too gives you that freedom, does it? Is yeah, that, I just, yeah, it was just freedom for me. It was like, I don't know what this job does. I don't even know who these people are, but they're going to hire me and um, they're going to pay me and that's all that mattered to me. Yeah, wow. So I wanted to ask you just to step back. For those who don't know and are very privileged not to know, what is a food bank? Um, it is, well, I don't know, they, do they still exist anymore? I don't know. This, well, they exist in a different way. When I, in the 90s, 2000s, they were, they were run by church groups and they were basically a big pantry where you could go and you could get given like tin food and, um, and I think I would give you a week's supply of food because I went, I went every week. So I don't think I ever got more than a week's worth, but I mean, they would have things like toilet paper and candles and because, you know, often people don't have electricity, blankets sometimes, but yeah, you'd get tin food and two minute noodles and whatever. I think now they've done a bit differently where they give you a hamper or something, um, at the likes of, can't remember what they're called here in Melbourne. I've had a brain freeze, but anyway, yeah, it's emergency food basically. And so, and that kind of kept you going and kept you from having to go back home. Yeah, correct. Like, <laughs> yeah. 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 Oh I'd be like, hello, I'm home. I was, that, was, that was not going to happen. I was like, whatever I had to do for that not to be my solution, I was willing to do. Yeah. Is there a moment where, like, what did it feel like to graduate? Like in that moment, were you like, I am free then? Or was there a moment further down the track where you really felt you could look back and go, yeah, that was the moment I felt really free? Or is it more gradual? No, much more gradual. I mean, still at my graduation, I was still desperately trying to get my family to come around, you know, like I was desperately trying to get my family to come to my graduation and desperately trying to get them to have a photo with me and desperately trying to, you know, trying to make this somehow work. Um, so no, it definitely wasn't that kind of like, oh yeah, I'm done. Um, it was, it never felt like it was done. Um, probably not until um, the last five, 10 years or so have I felt like, yeah, I've made it. I'm done. I'm done. I'm done. And again, it's being able to speak out and say, and not be scared of the consequences and not be worried about what they're going to think of me and not being embarrassed by my story. That makes me feel I'm done. Do you like your pillows with a side of helping other people as well? Me too. It's Claire, just in case you didn't know, and I'm interrupting today's show to talk a little bit more about today's sponsor, Laura's wonderful company, Go Kindly. Now, Go Kindly is a social enterprise making waves, embedding, and also social impact. Go Kindly retails hotel quality pillows and let me tell you, I've slept on these and they are like sleeping on air. They also have quilts and mattresses and 50% of proceeds go towards women experiencing housing stress and homelessness. All Go Kindly products are proudly Australian made and use no single use plastic packaging, leaving a kinder world for the generations to come. Proudly born in Coburg, supporting Juno, Women's Housing Limited and Launch Housing, you can check out Go Kindly at gokindly.com.au. That's G-O-K-I-N-D-L-Y dot com dot A-U. And you won't regret it. I have some of the pillows and some of the dunas and wow, they're awesome. They're the kind of things that are great basics that you will always need. So you can go over there to check them out and also know that you're supporting a really good cause at the same time. All right, on with the show. When you're going for a job interview like that to get a job and you're living on food banks and you're in this like small flat with nothing in it, how do you get sort of work attire that looks appropriate for people to hire you? (laughs) Well, yeah, I know it's funny, right? Because here's the thing. I grew up 
I grew up having to look a certain way and having to behave a certain way and I'm white and I'm it's pretty easy to pull yourself together and look presentable when people already assume because you're a nice blonde white woman that you got a leg up right I always had good verbal skills I always had good communication skills that I had so many things in my corner I have so many privileges it's not funny right um yeah, I, like there's so many things I'm thankful for. And one of them is that, you know, I had a very basic public school education, but it was a good school. It was a good education. I was taught to read and I was taught to behave. And because I come from a community who's obsessed with appearances, I was taught how to dress properly in, you know, nice long dresses and whatever. And that helps when you go into a consulting firm when there's a very specific look that you have to adhere to, Right. You know, the nice suit that you wear every day to church is exactly the same suit that you have to wear in a consulting firm, just with a slightly higher hymn. I I knew how to sew. I knew how to, you know, like I knew how to get by on not a lot. And and literally I went to Box Hill Shopping Centre to Suzanne's and I rummaged through and found a suit that looked like it it fitted with, with church. And I wore a suit like from Suzanne's, from the Suzanne's sales rack. And I had a pair of black shoes that came from the op shop that I coloured in the heels with black texture because they were scuffed and revolting. But I knew how to do those things because I'd grown up in a, in a household that knew how to manage that, They knew who, who knew how to go to church on Sunday and colour in your shoes so that you looked respectable. So in lots and lots of ways I'm very privileged that actually I was able to do that and I was able to pull that off. Mm, absolutely. What was it like then going into that kind of job interview and then into the workforce and even at university? Did people know about no. your background at all? No, and, and in fact, university was wonderful compared to the workforce. I mean, I I ended up working for a lot of, for and with a lot of very privileged, very private school educated people who had no concept that my life was any different to theirs. And it was a very confronting time for me to realise just how different I was. At university, I managed to blend in and hang out with alternative kids because what people often also don't know is that I also studied an arts degree in parallel to my accounting degree. So I did accounting and finance and also an arts degree where I did languages and feminism and lots of other amazing things. And so the people I met and hung out with at university, less mainstream people, and I you know, I don't regret that for a second because actually it's given me a much better base for life than accounting and finance has. Accounting and finance give me a lot of money, mind you, but that's not, that, you know, that's yes. not where I've gotten satisfaction from life. <laughs> I think you've done it really well. You've done both. Yeah, no, I think that's, it's so interesting, isn't it? So university is much more free thinking, I guess, and you could Correct. fit in, everyone comes from everywhere, whereas accounting's a much more narrow pool. Is it also a very male-dominated industry? Do you know, it wasn't. And it, it really? wasn't. It really wasn't. There was over 60% of my year graduates were women and and you know they were they were they were often diverse women too we had egyptian women we had a lot of women from east asia like it, it actually wasn't it's the higher you go the worse it gets and it's you know it's, it's those first couple of rungs from graduate up to senior manager and then uh, sorry a senior um senior accountant or senior associate and then from there it's just a male private school boys club They've why got, do you reckon uh, the behavior honestly it's a hard drinking long hours it's very racist. It's not. It's not a place that's nice for people who are not rich boys. <laughs> wow. Did you? Was there a point where you decided to leave that industry because of it? Like, how far no. up the rank did you go? No, I I got pushed out in the end. Wow. Still makes me very sad because actually I loved that work. I actually really loved it. The, the more senior I got, the less it was about the black and white numbers, and more and the more about you know people and 
dealing with um, solving business problems and um, partnering with really clever people. Um, I got pushed out after I had my son, actually. I was a senior, a CFO, basically, at a startup here in Melbourne. And um, after I had my son, they really just decided they didn't, didn't want me anymore and did everything they could to push me out. What did that? What does that mean? Like, not physically push you out the door, but do you mean? Well, they may as well have. Yeah. Oh, God. What? <laughs> yeah. No, I had my son, and I went back to work after six weeks because my son was a bit of a bit of an accident, and I had just I had started this job and found out I was pregnant pretty much straight away, and I had no maternity leave, and so my husband, who had worked at a, a for eight or nine years at another company, said, "Okay, well, I've got leave, so I and long service leave, so he decided to take." Um, he must have been there over 10 years if he had long service. Oh, no, it was seven. Anyway, sorry, the accountant in me is trying to calculate how his long service leave. Just ignore that. <laughs> um, anyway, he'd been there a long time and he took long service leave to look after our son after six weeks and he's, he was so good at it. He was amazing. And I went back to work and they basically decided that because they couldn't hold meetings at six, seven o'clock at night anymore because I wanted to go home and feed my baby, they'd, um, they didn't want me there anymore. So they did everything they could to work out ways to push me up the organisation. Hmm. By, by scheduling meetings when you couldn't be there and correct uh, right okay yes. and so and making decisions when they're at the pub or at that place right. where you couldn't Things be that I can no longer participate in anymore they were like right. well you're not doing a job are you you weren't at that meeting mm. yeah I wasn't at that meeting because you had that meeting at seven o'clock on a Friday night and that's not what I want to do no exactly oh my god a rage again rage again yeah for sure how did oh, you, it was horrendous. Oh, gosh. So something happy. How did it feel to kind of have enough money to have all the things that you needed and be able to just have money to just buy something online when you wanted to, you know, not have to get <laughs> shoes from an op shop and colour them in? <laughs> I don't know. I still like doing that. No, I don't really. <laughs> That's um, a great tip though. I'm taking that away. <laughs> honestly, I until about five years ago, I poured back every cent that I could afford back into other people in my family um, in this ridiculous idea that I could somehow save them and set them free from it. Um, and it, that was a huge eye-opener to me five or so, five, maybe eight years ago now to realise I don't need to do that anymore. This is not about other people. This is about me. And I'm much happier for it. So it's actually only been the last few years that you know, I've reinvested in myself and I've invested in my own well-being, things like my own mental health support, my own private health insurance, my own, well, we have our own home, but, you know, renovating our home and doing things for us. I, I actually hadn't. I had tried very hard to pour. I think I felt, no, I know I felt very, very guilty that I was the one that got out and then I got out and got an education um, and that I've just felt so lucky that I poured everything back into other people because I felt like I didn't deserve it. Mm. And who is there left behind? Is, is that your sisters and other members? Yeah, I have sisters, um, many cousins and parents and I had grandparents, but my grandparents have now passed away. Yeah. Yeah, I'm so sorry. Are you still in contact? Do you still? No, not really. It's not a – that's what I realised at the time was it's actually not a very functional relationship anymore. And I think there's a, there was a lot of parentification that happened of me as well in that I sort of became the parent to my siblings and because my parents, you know, were experiencing such, you know, there's just they didn't have the emotional maturity to deal with the things that were happening, the abuses that were happening inside the organisations, inside the group. And so I became carer very young and I took on a lot of responsibility for kids that I shouldn't have. Um, and that has really kind of played havoc with our relationships. 
What have you had to do to kind of put boundaries in? Are there things that you do for yourself now to do that? Yeah, and COVID has been another big curveball in all of that, right? Like for the last five to eight years, I you know, I spent a lot of time on things like psychologists, even just a massage regularly because, you know, my body just holds so much trauma and so much kind of tension that I've had to do things like learning how to have a massage and let go, how to see, you know, mental health professionals and learn how to process things when they happen because, you know, it is an ongoing trauma too. It never ends, you know. When my grandparents died, that was another trauma, like, how how like how do how do you deal with that? Going to a funeral full of running a, running the style of your community in your inside your community with people who don't want to speak to you and don't want to see you. So it's an ongoing trauma. You never get to just say it's over and it's done. It's like you're constantly coming back into it. In you know for funerals for realizing you've missed out on a birth or realizing you've missed out on a wedding or you know it's it's an ongoing trauma. So it's learning how to have conversations with mental health professionals and process that and work out how you deal with that. But now I do that, you know, I did for the first kind of 15 to 20 years. At least now I do it. Yeah, because you... Well, I did before COVID came along. Yeah, God, I know, exactly. And it takes away like a rug, all the things that you do, Mm -hmm. right, to keep that mental headspace Mm -hmm. okay. And it has a way of shining a light, doesn't it, on the things that aren't. It's just this whole hard thing. For lots of it is. Different it's very reasons. difficult, isn't it? Yeah. Mm. Even just things like I'm just very, very privileged, but I've always paid for a cleaner because it's the, I, I'm a compulsive. I get compulsive when I'm not feeling well, and I clean and clean and clean and clean, and nothing's ever clean enough. And of course, there is no cleaner allowed in our houses. <laughs> so it's like you know all these things that you've done for self care and you've done to cope with things have suddenly just been ripped away from you, and it's very confronting. Yeah. It, yeah. Completely. Let alone. If you're in situations that are unsafe in life, I just think about women in and families and, you know, people in all different situations where they don't like the people in their home, you know, and they have to be there. I really am so admiring of the work you're doing now at Go Kindly. Do you want to tell us why you're doing that? And I know it's a a social enterprise where you give 50% of the profits to homelessness for women. Do you want to talk to us about where that came from and why you do it? Yeah, well, as I mentioned before, after my son was born, I sort of was at a loose end and I felt like, you know, I'd worked in these really senior positions where I'd really helped a lot of other people make a lot of money and I looked around and thought, what do I do next? Like, I just really don't feel like I want to go back into that world again. I feel a bit jaded by it. I like it. I do. I love it. I love the wheeling and dealing. I love the, you know, I love leading teams and I love people and I loved so much about what I did, but I didn't like the end result was really that we were making a lot of profit and then it was buying a new Range Rover or a new Maserati or whatever for the for the CEO or for the founders and the owners. And I just thought it's got to be a way to do this and like do this better. And, I'll, and I'm good at it, you know, I'm good at this stuff. So how do I get the best of both worlds? How do I keep doing it, but do it in a way that's more more aligned to my values mm. and less about buying a new Maserati. So, yeah, I, I didn't know at that time anything about B Corps and I didn't know anything really about social enterprise. I just decided I know how to make a profit and I'm going to make a profit and I'm going to use that profit to support things I care about um, and I'm going to use my experience to do that. And so, yeah, the idea that we would do it, build a betting brand and that we'd use the proceeds to support women who were going through a tough time kind of came about. and. We haven't looked back. So it's about, yeah, everyday items. So it's really, it's if you think about who gives the crap in the toilet paper, the idea was we would do that for everyday bedding and home items. So the boring stuff like pillows and dunas and 
mattresses and, you know, the boring stuff that you use and you're always going to buy and you're always going to need. Um, done really good quality, made in Australia, and in every sort of step in the chain we'll try and help as many women as we can and make it do good. Mm, I think it's awesome. I've got some and they're awesome. Their pillows oh, are great. And, like It's oh, just great. Doing amazing. You can do as well. Fabulous. I did. I got, I got two. I got one for my bed and then one for my son's bed as well because we needed <gasps> a new one. So I thought, you know amazing. what, let's do it. Because Oh, I, I'm so pleased. Yeah, because I think, I think what you're doing is so wonderful and I often think, this is a generalisation, but the women I've spoken to in business who are doing their own thing often have that dual purpose, right? It's not just how much money can I get, how fast can I get it, how, how much better can I be. It's mm-hmm. what's my impact going to be with this for myself and my family, but for other people as well, you know, when we lift, you know, the, all the boats rise, whatever that saying is, Correct. Yep. you know, and also that idea of helping the environment too and, and thinking about our, you know, impact on everything. I think sometimes women have this really interesting way of connecting all of that together. And, um, yeah, so congratulations because it's such a great concept Yeah, thank you. Yeah, I think we are. It's important to see things in multi-touch point. You know, for me, it's not just one thing. It's like at every touch point, we try to we try to do the best that we can at each touch point. Not just like rush through and get it, you know, packaged in plastic and shipped out. And it's like, how do we do it in a way that's gentle all the way through? Mm, Yeah, exactly right. And you could tell that in the packaging. And and I'd so encourage people to go to go kindly and grab yourself some new pillows and things. Mm, Um, Yeah, I think as well there is like a a real connection, right, with family violence and women in homelessness in Australia. Do you have a perspective on that? Do you have some current research that you could share with us about statistics for women? We're actually waiting right now on the census um, to get the most up-to-date view. We're sort of holding our breath in a bad way um, because... Yeah, it's the last census was four or five years ago now, and we know that the issue has changed significantly since then. Um, homelessness in Australia, every night there is a hundred and well, at the last census, one hundred and thirteen thousand five hundred people experiencing like actual homelessness. That's people who said, you know, I currently don't have a home. We know that's the tip of the iceberg. That people don't identify as experiencing homelessness. They're living in a car. They're living with a friend. They are living in a caravan. They're living in temporary accommodation. They don't think that they are homeless. That is actually a form of homelessness. Um, they don't have a permanent place to live. Every at least half of those, so forty nine thousand of those, are women. Um, and at the last census, that was women over the age of, I think it's fifty five. It's fifty fifty to fifty five plus um, are the largest growing cohort of women in Australia experiencing homelessness. And that is confronting and that is usually due to relationship breakdown, um, to them being out for caring responsibilities and not having built up things like superannuation balances. Now, that's not their fault. That is the fault of the structural thing in, in the Australian kind of economy and system. But then there's also a large number of women with children escaping family violence and that we believe to be now the largest growing cohort of people experiencing homelessness, and that's what we expect will come out of the new census data, is that actually there's two cohorts of women experiencing homelessness, and that is the older cohort and then a younger cohort who have children in tow who are escaping family violence. And the reason we think that is because every one of the charity partners we're working with, that is the largest number of situations that they're dealing with at the moment, is children and their families that do not feel safe in their home. 
Is there things that people can do to help if they they feel like there's someone in their you know circle? They see that there's something going on. Are there that what what rec- what sort of things would you suggest people could do? It's actually about giving people affordable options for places to go because the reason this becomes what it does is that they have nowhere to go because there's no affordable housing options. So it's um, a very complex issue to solve. Um, It's not something that possibly can be solved by individuals. We need more social housing and I encourage people to make noise, much noise as they can about social housing, write to their MPs, sign petitions online, do what you can because that social housing is one of the first steps that women and, and non-binary people too, like let's not forget there's actually, you know, violence in LBTQI relationships as well, is that there's nowhere to go. And so they end up in this horrible cycle of staying in hotels, staying in motels, living in caravans, living in tents and couch surfing because there is no affordable housing. So it's about all of us making noise and forcing the governments to invest in good quality and large affordable housing. So single units, that, for instance, are great for older women single, you know, person units are great, but you can't put a family of four in a single unit long term. Like we really have to be really tough with our government about building, you know, two, three bedroom homes um, for social housing and doing it in places where people want to live because that's what empowers people to be able to leave situations that are not healthy or that are, that are violent or that are abusive. Mm. Do you know why it's on the rise or do you have a perspective on why family violence is increasing in that way? Um my personal perspective is that it's always been there. It's just that we're better at talking about it and articulating it and that actually we're starting to teach women and non-binary people not to put up with it. Coercive, the conversation about coercive control has been a really interesting one. There is a lot of coercive control inside relationships, in my opinion, um, that people haven't been able to put a finger on and haven't been able to have a conversation about. And that, I think, is driving a lot more people to think about it and to talk about it. But I also suspect there are some men who are not getting ahead as much as they used to in life, a lot of white middle-class men who are not getting ahead as much as they used to in life, and that's making them pretty angry. And I have no statistics, and this is my own personal opinion. (laughs) What do these people do with that anger, I think, is something we have to ask. When you're not getting ahead like you used to, when the jobs are not there like they used to, I think it's a bit of a toxic thing. Mm, Environment. And when you're not taught to express that anger in a way that's healthy, yeah, I was speaking to one of my friends, Sandeep Varma, who has an organisation called Sari Collective, and he amplifies South Asian Australian voices in his community, right. really. But he also is a lawyer and worked in children's advocacy and, and rights. And right. and he was he read a book called Man Enough by Justin Baldoni, and it's he talked about it as like a man box, right, where men mm-hmm. keep stuffing all this emotional shit basically in it with the lid on and not ever expressing it until it all just kind of explodes. And so the stuff that we're doing now even, right, like you were saying before about talking about your emotions and shining a light and being truthful, it's hard and you have to be vulnerable and it's, you know, gut-wrenching, but also it allows you to start to process it, right, in a healthy way. Yeah, a healthy way, correct. Yeah, and not ending up in a situation where you're then impacting the people around you in a in a violent way or or emotionally abusive way oh look I know it's such a complicated topic right but I do think it yeah from you know having more conversations around this stuff and as you were saying raising a new generation of men I'm hopeful the more that we can teach them about their own emotions and how to deal with all of that stuff when it happens in the moment you know maybe that can 
move towards helping. Yeah. I think too. Just in all of this, I think sometimes people aren't sure what coercive control actually means. Could you explain mm-hmm. that? I know it's that's a hard one. I don't know if I'm good at it. Um, for me, it's about controlling behaviour, behaviour that tries to encourage or push people to behave or to do things in a certain way and really leaves no option. It's emotional abuse at the end of the day. So it's things like you need to do X in order for Y to happen, pressuring people, um, putting people under in situations where the choice that they make is is one that they may not make if you weren't there pressuring them it's all about pressure for me I think that's probably a good way to put it and coercive behavior is it's complex because for me there's a lot of conversations about male coercive behavior towards women but actually I come from a community where coercive and Controlling behaviour is actually rife amongst women as well and into children. Coercive control over children is also rife. So I think there's a bit of a, in the, in the current dialogue, which I'm very, very supportive of and I think it's a great thing to be talking about, but there is probably a little bit too much emphasis on male coercive behaviour and not enough on how there is actually other cohorts of people who use this behaviour as well in order to for instance, threaten suicide if their children don't behave in a certain way or threaten to leave if their children don't behave in a certain way or withdraw financial support if their children don't behave in a certain way. So it's a pretty big debate of which we're only seeing a narrow sliver of it at the moment. Mm. So it's like the tip of the iceberg. Correct. Yeah. It's like all, it, it feels, do you agree it kind of feels like there's all of this stuff coming to the surface? Like if you had a facial and draw out all of that gunk out of your face and we're kind of in this situation where everything's coming out and it's awful and gross but hopefully down the track maybe when our kids are growing up some of that's been cleansed away you know hopefully, hopefully I just I just hope to God we get some of the social structures in place that help people with that you know I mean we talk about social housing but it's also things like our Centrelink payments are not nearly social support structures are not nearly high enough to support people who go I don't want to deal with I don't want to be in this relationship anymore or children who want to leave and go I don't want to deal with this anymore like I want a different life I mean we can have all this gunk come to the surface, but we've also got to have ways to support people through that gunk and mm. that worries me no end. And does that <laughs> that starts with government, right, like government funding? Yeah, I think business has a role to play too. I think we're asking our government to do a lot, which is why I do what I do with Go Kindly, right, which is why we donate the proceeds because I think I can't wait for government to get the shit together to do this. Like I need women to be safe now, not, not when we get the right government in power, not when we get the right people in the chamber. It's got to happen now. Mm. So it's it's about inspiring people to to do it and take it on themselves and contribute yeah, where they can. Correct. Yeah. Yep. Volunteer where you can. Go and buy from the from people who are doing things differently. Write letters. Like do what you can to try and put structures in place. But as as well as raise awareness. I mean, obviously supporting your own friends and raising awareness amongst your friends is important too. But yeah. We, this gunk is just going to keep coming forward and we're not, we need to make sure people are supported. Yeah, we've got the structures in place to do it. Yeah, this is all very heavy. I want to ask you something fun. How did you meet your husband? How did you oh guys God. meet? God, you're <laughs> going to get fun there. Um, we worked together. We were accountants together. Yeah, and um, remember I talked about that heavy drinking kind of long nights culture. Well, we were always the last two standing. <laughs> We were always the biggest drinkers and the biggest partiers. And, um, yeah, it was inevitable, really. <laughs> oh, that's, that's the 
Basically, romance blossoms. You know, you've got to have stuff in common to start yeah. with. Yeah. Hmm. Was there a point where you sort of knew that he was the person for you? Oh, gosh. Um, I don't know. It's been so long now, too. I mean, we've been together for, I don't know, 15, 16 years yeah. or something. Yeah, I know. God, it does. It flies, doesn't it? I, how did I know? I, I don't know. We have a lot of similar values. We have we've come from very different communities, and but nonetheless similar communities. In that he comes from a very traditional Italian family, very tight knit, very um, yeah, a lot of very similar values. Even though they're from a different cultural context, I think it was pretty obvious pretty early on that our, that our, 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 we're very similar. Mm. Um, even though we're completely different personalities and completely different in many, many ways, we, we value the same things. Yeah, which is important, I think. How have you built structure f- around you f- with support networks and, and relationships and friends when you don't have your own family around you in that way? Um, I look through, as I said, COVID's just thrown this completely on its head because it's not the way it used to be, but... I used to just pay for help. You know, I used to pay for the cleaner. I used to pay for the gardener. I used to pay for everything. <laughs> so I haven't got any help, so I have to pay for it. And I've been very lucky in that I've worked in some wonderful workplaces where I've made amazing friends and have good support networks and good friends as a result of the wonderful jobs I've had at the end of the day. Um, where I've met amazing people who are interesting and have been wonderfully helpful towards me. But I think we're going through... Right now, like quite a confronting time when it comes to realising how much people need support and help around them, that it's quite isolating to keep people in their homes on their own and mm. and your local community just becomes so important. We're very lucky. We come from a street of families that have got children and, we, you know, our son can go and play in the street with them and we've just become hyper-local. My support structure has literally become my street in the last couple of years. Because that's all we can do. Yeah. So I, think, I feel like in answer to your question, I'm going through a massive change in that regard because the things that I used to do or that used to work are just not there anymore. Yeah. And it's a big sort of time. I think COVID really has done that, right? We've had a lot of time to sit with ourselves and change, and you know, and mm-hmm. that for, be- for better or worse. Mm-hmm. <laughs> yeah. And a lot of time to like, I know, because we have a cleaner too, and it does sound super privileged, but when you work oh, for yourself, and you've, you know, you've got limited capacity and time, that's something you can outsource in a very easy way. So when that's taken away and, yeah, when you're someone who likes your space to be a certain way as well, that mm-hmm. I hear you. It sounds really privileged, but I also think it's a, I, I see our cleaner as part of our company, like part of our structure. She, they work for our customer. Yeah, correct. She works, for my, she, she works for us. Like it's part of our business at the end of the day. Is yeah. That's how we get work done is that that work also gets done. Correct. Because it's women's, like traditionally it's been fallen to women. women's work. Women's work, mm-hmm. right? That's the other reason I use one, right? And the other reason I'm really pissed about it is because my husband is pretty useless at it and that's the way we've gotten through. That's the way we've navigated our relationship mm-hmm. is that it doesn't get done by either of us and so neither of us carries the load of it. And so it changes the whole dynamic when all of a sudden we have to sit down and work out how it happens. <laughs> yeah, totally. I know and reframe it all because exactly right, it takes so much of the heat and arguments about it out because it nothing automatically happens, you know. You know, it just doesn't, there's no magical dish fairies <laughs> no. or laundry fairies. And so there are, there's a lot of interesting discussions, I think, for us anyway, happening in our house about it. And I think, you know, statistically, women still do the bulk of the domestic still do the work, bulk of it. right? Yeah. Even though we could, we are often working the same hours. And that's something that also needs to change, I think. And I'm 
you know, hopeful that it is changing. We so. need our little boys to lean into that. We need our little boys to grow up and realise the bulk that, you know, where, where labour comes from, like who does stuff, mm. um, to notice what's happening around them because for some reason boys just don't seem to notice or men just don't seem to notice the labour that's happening around them. Yeah, you know what? I James and I, James is awesome and we've been together for like 16 years or something, so it's this has been an ongoing process, <laughs> very ongoing, but recently we sat down and I listed all of the mental things, you know, in that checklist mm. that we've all got mm-hmm. ticking over. I listed all of it. I put it into categories. And initially he was like, we don't have time to put this into categories. I don't have time for this conversation. I'm like, I don't have time, but we got to do it. And then when I articulated it, then he could see all the things. Like he genuinely thought that it was equal until we sat down. And he's wonderful and really helpful. But I talked about it like I was the boss and he was the employee of the house and he would come to me and be like, what else needs to be done? What else needs to be done? Yes. And you don't want to be the boss. You want to be co-bosses. I mean, sometimes I want to be the boss. (laughs) Yeah. But, you know, but really you want to be co-bosses. And so then I would, then we kind of sort of said, right, well, you're in charge of this stuff and you just do it. Whenever you do it, it it's yours. That's your area and this is my area. And that really, I think, helped us a lot because it alleviated some of that frustration that I had. And also, you know, we've done the same thing with our son. But can I say some of the structures that sit around this from a social perspective are so fucking, excuse my language, broken. My son's responsible, my my husband's responsible for all the medical appointments. But guess what happens with every single medical appointment that gets booked? All the reminder notices get sent to me. All the reminder text messages get sent to me. It's like society has decided what a woman's role is and there's some things that just haven't caught up to the fact that actually someone else can do it. Yeah. So it's like I have I have actually given my husband, I've said, you are responsible for all medical appointments in this house. And he's very good at it. Mm. But they still try and drag me back into it, you know, and you're like, I don't want to be part of it. Stop putting me as the main contact. Yeah, yeah. Like, we need to get better at saying to men, okay, so who is going to be the contact here? And and our social structure is backing that up. And when it, my husband goes to the doctor's surgery and says, you need to change my number to be the primary number, they say to him, well, aren't you living in the same house or does it matter? And my husband says, yes, it matters. I'm in charge of the appointments. Like mm. it's like we don't trust men with some things. Yes. Correct, exactly. You're so right. It is that social and cultural pressure, I guess. And also there is something in having to understand that maybe the first time a bloke does it, he's not going to do it right because the first time I did it, I didn't do it right either, you know, and a lot of it is down to, oh, but women can just do it better, you know, or women are just better at that. And I think that's... We're better because we've been doing it since we're five. Exactly. So just stop that. Exactly. You know, like I remember, James is going to have you telling the story, but I've told before, so it's okay. He had to order some... I said, you're in charge of ordering the school uniforms. Yeah, Now, they arrived and they were man size, like (laughs) man size. I mean, like he could wear them. (laughs) It was a man size small. And I was like, mate, he's not going to be able to wear this polo. You could wear it to cricket on the weekend. And... But anyway, he like was mortified and so like, oh God. But then he went back in and now for next year, if he has to order he another knows. jumper, he knows that actually he needs to sort of buy a size seven, not a size small. <laughs> but, and, but that's the thing. Like I've made mistakes like that as well. It's just that I've yeah. been ordering shit online for 20 years. For so long that so, you know. That you know that you have to double check the sizing. And all of those. And maybe buy one of each. Correct. And send one back. Yes. 
Exactly. And, you know, so sometimes it is about also accepting that it may not be look the way that you wanted it to look. You want it to, would yes. be as perfect too. Yes. Anyway. No, it's true, isn't it? Yeah, it's, it's all of this stuff is so interesting. What is your main sort of philosophy on life now? Because I know you've grown up in a very different, we'll say, interesting context and, and had a lot of different, you know, roles in your life. What What's the kind of overarching philosophy you live with now? I am... Um... The thing that I say to myself and that I wish that I'd known earlier is just to go and do the things that make you happy. And it sounds really simple and really naff, but I mean, I knew that this work would make me happy. I just, I've known since I was, what, 14, 15, that working for myself and being a leader in things and getting stuff done was what I loved and what I enjoyed. And in lots of ways, I regret that I spent so many years working inside those, you know, those big organizations and, and small organizations in finance and accounting because, sure, it got me a lot of money and I met a lot of good people, but actually that's not what made me happy. What makes me happy is doing things that I already knew made me happy. I was trying to fit into boxes and trying to do things that I thought I had to do. I was trying to trying to make myself into something I wasn't. And I think it's really important. And you never know exactly what it is that, that you're going to be or that you're going to do, but I think if you just follow the things that you enjoy and somehow find ways to make money around the edges of that, um, I, I just think it's a really good recipe for living a good life is not to try and follow the, what other people are doing or what other people say to you, but like know what makes, brings you joy and, and what you love doing and find ways to monetize that. Mm, completely. I, I wholeheartedly agree. And it doesn't have to look the way that other people want it to look either. No. You know? No. I mean, we bang on, especially in, in my career, my previous career about mentors and sponsors and you know, I, I did that for, for 15, 18 years. You know, I had mentors, I had sponsors, I did training, I did whatever, but that's just putting, pushing you down the path of other people. And, and, and it's, while it's great to get other people's ideas and other people's thoughts, you've really got to know what makes you happy. You can't mentor your way into happiness. You can't get sponsorship to make yourself happy. Like, mm. you've got to do that. This is a one-person job um, and I think your best place to do that. Mm, absolutely. Know yourself, right? And that's the gift of getting older, I think. You know? Yeah, sadly. <laughs> I know. We've aged about 50 years in COVID. Oh, we've really got to know ourselves, you know, Laura. We've oh, no. Yep. <laughs> got to know about grey hairs, let me tell you that. <laughs> oh, mate, I think it looks great. I actually do. Yeah, yeah. yeah. I think it suits you. I feel about 80, but anyway. No, it looks good. But, yeah, that's the thing, right? That's the other thing. All the stuff that we do to our hair and ourselves to make ourselves feel better give ourselves some self-love that's not there either gone gone zero I started meditating that's been my uh thing I know I know right right wow crazy I only do it twice a week not like every day but that has actually been really helpful and I know people say it's really helpful but it's one of those things that I've never wanted to do but it it is actually been like a little warm bath for my head I do it for like I am in awe (laughs) Yes, I feel, thank you. Thanks for that. Sometimes I say that I'm meditating to my husband and I'm really just hiding in the front room. <laughs> Let's not tell him that. <laughs> that is a form of meditation. It's self-care. I do that too. Yeah, yeah, exactly. That's all it is. Actually, to be fair, that's all it is. I just sit on a rock in our backyard alone. <laughs> but I'm meditating. So no meditating. one can talk to me. Okay, let's not share this secret with anyone. <laughs> actually, meditation is hiding. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> for women. 
asking you another question. Oh, I've lost my shoe. Sorry. Meditating. I meditate. It's really important. <laughs> it's for my mental stability. It's like, you know, I'm basically a yogi. <laughs> yeah, basically. Exactly. All right. Well, thank you so much for coming on Taunts. I've really appreciated your time and it's just oh, it's been, been lovely. lovely to chat. Oh, it's been awesome. Where can people find you now and go kindly? Well, you can look at go kindly, which is, you know, go and kindly, one word. Um, and on, if you look on social media, there's a hashtag in front of it because we're cool, <laughs> which you know you're not if you have to say that. <laughs> um, uh, yeah, but online is probably the best place to, to find us. We have a studio in Coburg, but with COVID and everything, we're not really operating from there at the moment. Mm-hmm. Excellent. Cool. You've been listening to a podcast with me, Claire Tonti, and this week with Laura Conti. For more from Laura, you can head to Go Kindly. That's hashtag Go Kindly, G-O-K-I-N-D-L-Y. There's more information about their organization at the beginning and the middle of this episode, but head on over there. And she's also on LinkedIn too, if you want to reach out to her as well, which I I really recommend following her blog too, which is on the Go Kindly website. She writes a lot and has a lot of stories to tell. There's also an episode of SBS's Insight, which tells more of Laura's story. I wanted to thank her so much because I know she's been telling her story a lot. And I think in telling it, she has been incredibly brave and generous. I think her advocacy work is so vital and important. All right. For more from me, you can head to clairetonti.com or I'm on Instagram at clairetonti. This episode comes out every Tuesday and is edited by the wonderful Raw Collings. You can also find me on another podcast called Suggestible Pod that I do with my husband, man, and that comes out every Thursday. Recommendations for things to watch, read and listen to in that one and just a bloody good time is had by all over there. If you loved this episode, I would so love you to share it with a friend and you can rate and review and subscribe in-app just straight away. That would just do me the biggest favor of all time. And if you want to email me, I would love to hear from you at tonspod at gmail.com. Okay, that's it from me this week. Big, brave story in this week's episode. And as I said up top, if it brought up anything for you, there are links in the show notes below to organizations you can reach out to or talk to someone you trust. Let's look after each other and our mental health, hey, as much as we can. Maybe go meditate on a rock. (laughs) That's what I'm trying to do at the moment. Okay, big love to you. Talk to you soon. Bye. deserves the best and there's no better place to shop for Mother's Day than Whole Foods Market. They're your destination for unbeatable savings. From premium gifts to show-stopping flowers and irresistible desserts. Start by saving 33% with Prime on all body care and candles. Then get a 15-stem bunch of tulips for just $9.99 each with Prime. Round out mom's menu with festive rosé, irresistible berry chantilly cake, and more special treats. Come celebrate Mother's Day at Whole Foods Market. Even when we're on a budget, we still deserve nice things. Quince is a place to scoop up stunning high-end goods for 50 to 80% less than similar brands. They have buttery soft cashmere sweater starting at $50, luxurious Italian leather bags, and so much more. Plus, Quince only works with factories that use safe, ethical, and responsible manufacturing. Get the high-end goods you'll love without the high price tag with Quince. 
Go to quince.com slash style for free shipping and 365-day returns.